We're delighted to introduce you to Indian Summer Festival's Ideas series. Every year, the festival hosts inspiring talks by some of the most creative thinkers and writers in the world. Our Ideas series sponsor is Creative BC. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and the University of British Columbia, media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio, and our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, the province of BC, and the BC Arts Council. Welcome to Indian Summer Festival's Ideas Series. Pulitzer Prize nominee Deborah Baker takes us back to the moment when America's edgiest writers looked to India for answers, as India looked to the West. In 1961, Allen Ginsberg, ecstatic sensualist and the voice of a generation, left New York by boat for Bombay. Baker follows Ginsberg and his companions as they travel from the ashrams of the Himalayan foothills to the opium dens of Delhi and the burning pyres of Banaras. They encounter an India of charlatans and saints, a country of spectacular beauty and spiritual promise and of devastating poverty and political unease. The Beats in India with Deborah Baker was supported by Hari Sharma Foundation. Before coming here, I pulled out an old interview with Allen Ginsberg, who's going to be the subject of the discussion tonight. And it appeared in the Georgia Strait on July 12th, 1968. So that was in the second year of the Georgia Strait, right here. If you can see it, you've got uh, Dan McLeod on the far right, who's the um, publisher and still the owner of the Georgia Strait, and two police officers harassing him, saying, hand over those papers or we'll get you for resisting arrest. And that actually happened to Dan because he would distribute his newspapers without a license. Um, one of the sections, this huge interview, it's a double-page spread with Allen Ginsberg, dealt with ecology, and I'm going to quote him because it's probably of great interest to people interested in environmental issues, and Amitav Ghosh, who's uh, specialized in that with fiction and nonfiction writing. This is what he said what in the interview. Poisoning of the atmosphere, 1968, with carbon wastes causing a greenhouse effect, heating up the atmosphere, year 2000, prophesized by Science Advisory Committee as the date of an irreversible greenhouse effect, raising the temperature of the planet five degrees, melting polar ice caps, drowning New York. He was just getting started. We've murdered all sorts of mammal species, Ginsburg continued. And I think there are 29 varieties of birds and mammals which are doomed to extinction in the next few years unless some radical action is taken to save them. So this is said in 1968. And he was, you know, he's on the right track, maybe missing the timing a bit on the climate change, and, um, but also very conservative on species extinction. Because according to the World Wildlife Fund, by 2020, there will have been a 67% decline in wildlife populations on planet Earth since 1967. So this is the mind of Allen Ginsberg. He could see into the future. Um, some of you, those who've read Deborah Baker's book, um, will know that Allen Ginsberg taught poetry for three weeks in Vancouver immediately after a 15-month journey across India with his partner, Peter Orlovsky, and some of the other beat poets. And that trip to India is actually an incredible tale. Probably nobody other than Deborah could have told it with such dexterity, given her deep ties to India and, and also living in, in Goa and spending a lot of time in Kolkata. So her book, A Blue Hand, the tragic comic mind-altering odyssey of Allen Ginsberg, a holy fool, a rebel muse, Dharma bum, and his prickly bride in India, and she can explain who these characters are. It's riotously entertaining and informative, but it also provides some deep insights at a troubled time in world history. You know, you had the China-India border skirmish, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and um, so here's what some of the publications have said about Deborah's book. Biography which fascinatingly reads like fiction. That's from The Statesman. Deborah Baker tells the story of the beats as it should have been told, with passion and verve, the Hindustan Times. The book raises larger questions about how travel helps to define one's identity and sense of home. And that's the Library Journal. And now here's the New York Times book review. Baker's work is a piece of devoted scholarship 
and legwork, dunked in the screwy, hyper-intelligent, tragicomic essence of everything that drove Ginsburg to take, to take a trip that not only changed his life, but helped spawn generations of hipsters, hippies, writers, artists, rock stars, mental cases, and self-anointed medicine men, and I might even suggest possibly the Georgia Strait. So <laughs> tonight, uh, Deborah Baker will begin by reading a passage from A Blue Hand, then I'll ask her some questions to get things started, then we'll take questions from you in the audience. Um, Deborah Baker has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography. She's written for many publications, including the Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal. She's written four other books, including her most recent, The Last Englishman. So with no further ado, can, I'd, I'd like to encourage everyone to please give a warm Vancouver welcome to Deborah Baker. and Laurel and all of you guys for coming. It's really uh, so great to be here in Vancouver. It's my first visit ever to um, this beautiful city. And um, I'll, I'll just switch here for a sec. And um, anyways, so I'm following in Allen Ginsberg's footsteps once again. So, uh, so this uh, book basically tells the story of Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky's journey through India, 15 months. In the beginning, they, they, um, they, travel, they traveled with Gary Snyder the easiest. Um, f uh, and his wife, Joanne Kiger. They were both poets. They were both living in Kyoto, and they came to India and met up with Peter and Allen eventually. And, um, so, and they had a very different approach. They were looking for different things from India. Um, than Alan, but um, so it really wasn't until Alan left um, Gary and Joanne in Bombay and traveled across the continent to Calcutta that he really sort of began to experience India on his own terms. This is um, this place where he stayed with Gary Snyder and Joanne and Peter uh, in the foothills of the Himalaya, um, not far from Nanda Devi, which Gary Snyder was a big mountaineer kind of person, he loved mountains and rivers, so he wanted to see Nanda Devi, so they spend some time up in the, up in the hills. But anyway, so I'm gonna um, start, uh, read a little section from towards the end of the book, when uh, Alan and Peter arrive after six months in Calcutta, they've traveled to Benares. Like Venice in the off-season, Benares in winter has a magisterial indifference to those who come to walk the ghats and contemplate eternity. Yet in Venice, the weight of one's ir irrelevance is lightened by this pitiless thought. The city is clearly mortal. In Benares, there is no such consolation. The sight of the faithful reenacting ancient rituals in the midst of its undying grandeur can keep a person awake at night, haunted by the rickshawwala's sleepy conversations in the, sleep, in the street below. The widow with her brass can making her mincing bow-legged way down to the Ganges was there long before Allen Ginsberg took care to describe her, and she and her life will be there long after. It is not merely that this is the most ancient, continuously lived in city in the world. It is that Benares is forever and we are not. That is the song of Benares in winter. The river plays the major chord of this lament, and in December 1962, the river was everywhere. It was in the air, mixed with the smoke of dung fires, funeral pyres, fried noodle stalls, and beaties. It was in the shapeless black woolen sweater that Ginsburg wore to keep warm. It was in the thin red towels that would never, never dry out, and most stubbornly, the river was in his lungs, which no cough, no matter how long or how deeply he hacked, would ever clear out. At night, he coughed. In the morning, amid the sounds of the city bestirring itself, he coughed. Every pharmacist shrugged. He was a foreigner, unused to the cli climate. 
There was nothing to be done. But it was not only Allen Ginsberg who coughed, who fought off the river fog that settles like a cat on one's chest. The arrival of the yellow fog in the early morning was greeted by a cacophony of coughs. In winter, even the Maharaja in his palace upriver coughed. Alan spent the first few days in Benares staring into the funeral pyres at Manikarnika Ghat. After Nimtala Ghat in Calcutta, he found the seam tame. In front of him lay the Ganges, and behind him were the palaces and ashrams and dharamsalas and temples stacked along the riverfront as it bent away from the train bridge to the south. The Ghats lay at the feet of these palaces, Escher-like stone steps of varying widths and depths. Some were steep and some were shallow enough for even the most ancient and buckled of widows to make their way from the lanes to the river's edge to bathe and receive the Mother Ganga's blessings. Early one evening, not long after they settled in, Alan stood on the balcony that overlooked the vegetable market at the intersection leading to Dasashwamid Ghat. His journal lay open in front of him. Peter had gone out for tandoori chicken. The desk officer at the Foreigner's Registration Bureau had asked Alan, why does he stay so long in India? And now, wrapped in a blanket to ward off the chill, he looked down at the evening crowds, the burping cows, and saw them as if for the first time. And what he saw were moving corpses, dead things covered in clothes, bodies destined only for the pyres. With all the gongs being run, all the cigarettes being sold, rickshaws flagged, meals cooked, clothes washed, tickets bought, it was hard to see what it all added up to beyond the tired thought that everyone, every living thing was doomed. One of the first things Alan always did upon settling in a new city was to arrange to receive his mail at the nearest post office. In his letters, he argued politics with his father, sketched his itineraries, and conducted the business of having books sent, taxes paid, and proofs corrected. In letters, too, he would give rushed, not condensed summaries of his travels as if he didn't entirely trust language to carry the weight of what he had seen. But he couldn't bear being alone with it either. A description from a letter to Lucy and Carr would end up repeated in, in another one to, to Gary Snyder or Jack Kerouac. Unlike his letters, Alan's journal writing was a kind of solitary meditation. There, too, his observations tripped over one another, half undressed, too much in a hurry to do more than sketch the tableau of Daswamid Market or Manikarnaga Ghat. Yet as he stood there on the balcony, lightheaded with hunger and impatient for Peter to return with his chicken, suddenly the greedy litany he'd collected seemed sleazy. He couldn't bring himself to reread any of his journals, much less mine them for poetry. In the shadows of the arcade overhang below him, the dying called out weakly. These frail shades had not yet made their way to, into his journal or his letters, but they hadn't escaped his eye. Having observed the dead so closely, having cataloged the raw incineration of their flesh, would he now, from this perch, document those death throes as well? Not long before leaving Calcutta, Alan had accepted an invitation to teach a three-week course in Vancouver the following summer. In exchange, he would receive a plane ticket home. Like a man who, without fully awakening, sees that he is dreaming, he suddenly realized that the time he had left in India was no longer open-ended. Had he found what he had come for? He had smoked in an opium den a few times. He had shot up morphine more than a few times. And he'd abandoned his psilocybin. And what of finding a teacher whom he could love? What of getting closer to God? What of touching poverty? With the knowledge that he was running short of time came a sense of heightened urgency. He hoped that Benares would provide answers to these questions. But there was yet another lingering uncertainty. How was this all to end? Upon his awakening, would the long, winding sentence of India finish with a period, an exclamation, or a question mark? In the midst of his reflections, Alan's eye was caught by a devotee profusely garlanded with flowers sprinting around the corner of the street below. He was carrying a brass tray of offerings and making a beeline for the gods. Approached by a beggar camped next to the pacanist, the man grabbed a handful of sweets and filled the open palm before continuing merrily on his way. Alan turned to Peter, who had just returned with two dead birds to eat, 
snuck in under the nose of the landlord, a Brahmin pundit. They're all mad, he said, finishing his thoughts, at least for the day. Thanks. this working? Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Deborah. Maybe I'll, I'll just start by asking how you got interested in the Beats and Allen Ginsberg in particular. Sure. Well, um, I wanted to write about India in the American imagination. And um, I sort of started at the beginning with um, Thoreau's reading of uh, the, the transcendentalist reading of, you know, various uh, Hindu Sanskrit texts and sort of went up through Martin Luther King. And, and, and then, you know, and it, this went on for a couple of years. And then finally I came to Allen Ginsberg and I thought, oh, duh. Because when I first moved to Calcutta, um, you know, there was a lot of suspicion of Americans. Um, Allen, when he first arrived in Calcutta, would they, people were convinced that he was a CIA agent, which is absurd. Um, and, but and there's just great suspicion of any Americans coming through Calcutta. So after a while, you know, when they realized I wasn't going away, you know, they would begin, these writers that I would meet would begin talking to me about Allen Ginsberg with great affection and warmth. And so I felt grateful in a way that he had sort of broken the ice for me um, in Calcutta. And I'd known that he had kept journals and written letters and so I was eager to use him as a vehicle to explore this relationship between America and India. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, you also went back to the early life of Allen Ginsberg and, and his mother and what, what he went through there and his, you know, the, the howl, his famous poem. And what can you tell us about the early days of Allen Ginsberg that kind of leading up to up to the trip to India? Yeah, well, um, uh, Allen Ginsberg's uh, mother was completely mad, and his parents' marriage broke up fairly young, and he was sort of left on his own to look after his mother, who was you know, institutionalized many times, who underwent um, lobotomies, and, and um, it was really a very sad situation, but he adored her and looked after her very tenderly, um, she had had many operations. She was covered with scars, and um, she was constantly taking off her clothes. And all these sort of became kind of, uh, you know, I, I think Alan really identified with her very strongly. And so in Bengal, where they, where you have, uh, you know, Kali, who's a very sort of angry goddess, who's, you know, a big. Um, very powerful goddess, you know, he really related to her, he really related to Krishna, so I, from his back background, very poor, sort of, you know, lower working, lower middle class uh, background, um, he, you know, he, he was comfortable hanging out with these, you know, poets who were in rather desperate straits themselves. Um, but yeah, so he, he went to Columbia, he had a hard time graduating, he was briefly institutionalized himself after he had this experience where he saw God and, um, and that created this sort of spiritual hunger in him. And in those days, you know, people didn't see God. That wasn't something that one did. You know, you, you were basically diagnosed with schizophrenia and you were treated as if this was a uh, pathology. Um, so he was, he spent some months in an insane asylum um, and, uh, and then somehow, you know, magically recovered, but he never got over this idea that he had to have that experience again of, of, of feeling very close to God. And how did the, the Beats get together on this, this group of people? They're all kind of oddballs, but also very curious and challenging convention. Um, yeah, How well, did that you know, come together? there were, uh, he, he met um, most of them at Columbia. He met first Lucien Carr, 
Um, he was this very beautiful young man um, who introduced him to William Burroughs. Jack Kerouac sort of came in, and all these people would become his touchstones. And um, a few years later, he met this other poet in the village named Gregory Corso, who was kind of this wild, manic Italian-American who had been writing poems in uh, Bellevue where he'd been sent, you know, after, you know, he, uh, he was sort of a, you know, a, a child thief. And um, so that sort of became the core group. There would be other people, women as well, who would sort of attach themselves to that group. But they were basically, um, Alan, they were the, his touchstones. And Alan had this idea that they were all going to go to India together. And so he, and a lot of his time in India is writing these letters to Jack and to Burroughs, you know, trying to entice them to come, you know, describing with abandon all these wonderful experiences ha happening, happening, you know, uh, all these, he met the Dalai Lama, he spent time with all these lamas who were coming out of Tibet, and, you know, he hoped to find a teacher. And in the end, um, it was really, he, none of them came, they just, but th he wrote these amazing yeah, letters. Yeah, write. Th they, they would write. But he would write, but they wouldn't come. It yes. looked like Gregory. I mean, Gregory Perso kept might promising come, to come. Yeah. But the the other uh, a couple that you you wrote extensively about uh, Gary Snyder, who's from Washington State, and uh, Joanne Kiger, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, mm -hmm. um, they had a fascinating story too. And and how did they end up in India with with uh, well, um, Gary was a serious student of Zen Buddhism, so he was in Kyoto to become enlightened. Um, and he was desperate that Joanne join him from Northern California. And he said, you know, if you come to Kyoto and, and you know, study meditation and Buddhism, Zen Buddhism alongside me, you know, you will lose your ego. And she goes, like, why would I want to lose my ego? I've tried for years to have one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, they were just sort of on two different paths. And, um, and she's sort of like, she's the prickly wife in the, you know, she, you know, she doesn't like not having showers every day. You know, she goes to use the women's restroom and, and a woman brings in the station master because she can't believe that this is a woman, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, she just, everything about India sort of get, you know, and especially Alan going on and on and on about his neuroses and Howell and, you know, his uh, inability to sit still to meditate. I mean, she just has no patience for any of them. And she's writing her journal, Gary's writing his, Peter's writing his, Alan's are all sort of writing about each other. So I had this wonderful source material. You know, I could look at, you know, one instance through four different perspectives. Well, one of the things I found amusing was how uh, Gary Snyder was very cheap. Yeah. And, and Allen Ginsberg would, s would stay in the, the, you know, he was not riding first class <laughs> no. on the trains. And w what, like, I think when Westerners sometimes go to India, they're, they're, they're almost afraid to get into the third class car. Right, and right. yet he seemed to, to relish this. Yeah, he was, you know, Gary liked to go and talk to, you know, intellectuals and writers, but Alan was so happy just to, you know, his, some of his best uh, friendships, oldest friendships, you know, he would just, people that he would meet on the train, you know, like Ju Jane Jewelers or, or Parsis, you know, he just, shopkeepers, you know, he just had this way, he wasn't, he wanted, you know, to get down and he was just a genius traveler and, um, and so he, he wasn't interested in going necessarily to museums and appreciating, you know, this kind of art or that kind of art or, or you know, talking with the Dalai Lama about his meditation techniques. I mean, that was Gary's sort of shtick. Um, you know, he, his thing with the Dalai Lama is that he wanted him to try LSD and tell him what he thought, you know. He thought, like, you know, that could be a shortcut so you wouldn't have to s meditate for hours and hours <laughs> and hours. So... Um, so he just had a completely different approach to uh, India than Gary and Joanne well, did. This is the thing, as, I'm reading, as I was reading the book, I felt he was so comfortable in India, almost more comfortable than he seemed like he was in America when, uh, when, you yeah. when I was reading the second. And why, why do you think he was, he was just so comfortable in India? 
Well, I think he re he really got comfortable in when he got to Calcutta. I mean, and and the like the USIS, which is the U.S. Uh, information Service, they would try to get him to meet the sort of what, you know, the hoity-toity poets and literary people, and he was really kind of bored with them because they were kind of genteel and all you know they were all talking only about Tagore. But then at a certain point, he met up with this group of poets that I think reminded him of who he had been at that age, you know, in, in, at Columbia with Jack, and they were all kind of had their own personalities. They were all came from uh, desperate circumstances. Um, a lot of them had emigrated from East, Be East Bengal, which was then East Pakistan. And um, so they were kind of not part of this, what they called the vegetarian uh, literary crowd. They, their poetry used like the language and slang of the streets and of the factories and of the, you know, rural places. And, and they weren't at all, uh, you know, and they liked to get drunk. And, and so Alan, and they had never talked to an, uh, a white person before. And Alan not only, you know, patiently, you know, went through Howell line by line, you know, explaining what, what he was saying here and there, but he would repeat himself very slowly because they couldn't understand his New Jersey accent. They just never had, that experience with a white person before. There were still a lot of snooty Brits in Calcutta at the time running the newspapers and things. So it was a very unusual experience for them. It also seemed that he had, he thought a lot about, like at one point he said that there, uh, he regretted that there wasn't an Indian English in, in, um, in India. I'm not sure whether you agree with that or not, but yeah, um, he 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 thought that Indian writing in English had no future. He, he and these obviously these people were all writing in their mother tongue, which was Bengali, and and that seemed even though he couldn't read or understand their poetry, mm -hmm. that seemed uh, more authentic to him than this idea that you know you could have poets like the, a lot of the Bombay poets were writing in English, and he had no patience for that. Well, it was interesting too in, in Calcutta that he was in this world that it was so literary and so artistic and so yeah. Like, what is it like when you're when you're living in in that milieu? Well, I, it was it was different when I was there, but you know, at that time, this is a time of you know, Satyajit Ray's films were coming out, and you know, whenever there was a new one, it would be like a riot. You know, there was just so much excitement mm -hmm. about his films. Um, y this was the time of Uday Shankar, who was a dancer who danced uh, Indian classical dance all over the world. Ravi Shankar, his younger brother, was you know just, and there were it, you know so, Calcutta was just teeming with these amazing talents, um, and and including you know the poets that Alan hung out with. They weren't famous at all at that time. They had their own magazine, but they would go on to be completely beloved and, and towering figures in Bengali literature. What, what I find it interesting is, is, maybe you could answer this, is why are the Bengalis so progressive and so artistic? It was just an incredibly rich culture. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one thing that, they, he complete, he, that he was always disappointed by was that they weren't interested in their gods and goddesses at all. He, uh, Alan was very much on a spiritual search, and you know he was still looking for a teacher, and and that he but he got them to go with him to the gods and uh, to the the burning gods, and he got them to translate for him whenever he tried to talk to sadhus about their beliefs and things like that. But really, they just thought it was a lark. You know, they just thought it was you know some just go another westerner. Yeah, just. <laughs> a place to go get stoned and, you know, hang mm -hmm. out and talk and, you know, watch the right. bodies burn. And I have to ask you about Ashok Sarkar, who, mm -hmm. who lived many years in Vancouver, moved here in 1971, but mm -hmm. he was Allen Ginsberg's guide in, in, in uh, Calcutta. He and was. And so how did they come together and why, why do you think they hit it off so well? Well, Ashok made it a point to, to, he was very much connected with all the various consulates in, in Calcutta, and he knew whenever a foreigner showed up in the city because he would just make a beeline for them because it was a source of income for him. And so he showed up at Alan's uh, hotel room one day. He was staying in this really grim hotel in the Muslim part of town called the Amjadia. 
and um, he had, you know, he created this organization. He wanted Alan to help him write a letter to um, uh, Bertrand Russell because he felt he, uh, Hinduism was the secret to world peace and anti-nuclear stuff. Bertrand Russell. So, and and from there he brought Alan to like Kali Ghat and showed all him all the places that were important for you know his spiritual teachings. And he he introduced Alan to Nimtala. He brought Alan into the ben, you know the rural Bengal countryside, um, and introduced him to the Bal singers. There was one singing when you all walked in. I, there was a clip of one singing, and um, so you know I don't really um, go into so much in the book. You know his subsequent incarnation in in Vancouver, but I did write it in sort of an outtake of the book. I wrote about um, what happened with, uh, with Ashok, you know, mm -hmm. how yes. he came to America, you know, how he kept his friendship with Alan, Gin you know, that was a constant really till the end of Alan's life. And they, and they shared a birthday too. And they shared a birthday, yeah, that's yeah. right, which is, and, and, and um, yeah, and Al it was really f because of Alan and his relationship with Bob Dylan, and Albert Grossman, that that uh, Ashok Sarkar ended up not only in America but as Timothy Leary's guru for a while, and then finally I think he was had to get out of America quickly and snuck into Canada where he, he lived. He, he was also um, the advertising manager at the Georgia Strait for a little <laughs> while. Uh, he is a man of many incarnations. Very many <laughs> talents. He also worked at Pacific Press, which is owned the Vancouver Sun and Province in those days, and um, he was a magician. Dan McLeod, the uh, publisher of the Georgia Strait, told me that he had Ashok come to his children's, uh, his daughter's birthday party to do magic, and was a musician. And he started a little Krishna worship circle yeah. here. I don't yeah. know if, uh, if there are any people here who were part of that, but uh, they would sit around and sing bhajans and, and mm. bring a little Krishna energy here. One, you've got a scene in in your book about them visiting the funeral pyres, and uh -huh. this this was just incredible to read. Um, <laughs> so, would you like to share with the audience what what would happen at these events? And you know, it's almost sacrilegious in a way, but um, well, I mean, so Alan would bring these Bengali poets, you know, and Alan had a deep seated fear of death, and you know, and there is a, a practice. A sort of tantric practice where you sit and you meditate on death in the in the charnel grounds. You sit among, you know, the ashes and the scattered bits of bones, and drink wine out of skulls, and you know, basically just contemplate your end there. And and I think that's what he hoped to accomplish was to, um, you know, and also there were these beautiful young men, sort of getting really stoned and dancing, and that was also nice um, for him. But, and, and uh, so people would bring their, you know, their deceased family members to the burning ghat, and um, they would pay the bombs, the men who oversaw the, the collection of firewood and, and saw that, you know, the bodies were turned and burned completely. Um, they would pay them, and then they would also pay, there would be these sadhus, these uh, sort of holy men sitting around, um, very, very proud, very arrogant, very uh, powerful people, and um, who to say prayers for, oh, for their, the souls of their departed relatives. And so people would sit around really all, for hours, all night, waiting for their, their mother's body to burn and then collect the ashes and, and put the ashes in the river, which ran behind the, the burning god. So Alan would do this and uh, he would go there at night. He sp would go there sometimes all night. And I did it once just to see what it was like. And there was, you know, this fierce looking sadhu and, but he would like buy ganja from the sadhu and they would smoke and um, the sadhu would smoke first, and then he would pass uh, uh, it along to Alan and Alan's friends. 
and you know they just sort of hung out there. Um, and Alan would write incredibly detailed and graphic descriptions of what it, what he was seeing, and uh, sort of become. And, and and he did the same when he went to Benares. He just sort of immersed himself in this. And but after a while, it was like, you know. He got o and that 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 section that I read, it was like, okay, he had done the dead, but could he do the dying? And that was that was another sort of hurdle that he had to go through. And and how did the Indians react to his sexuality? Um, well, uh, I mean, they're a little. I mean, it depends on who you were talking to. The the f his friends were. Okay, um, uh, the more Badrilok uh, Bengalis were completely horrified and disgusted. Alan would introduce Peter as his dear wife, and they just and and also they you know they didn't wear underwear. They they were dirty. They didn't take showers. So there was a lot of he he there was a, a lot of um, impatience with Alan in Calcutta, but not his friends. They were like okay, and Sunil Ganguly. Um, who I interviewed a lot for the book. He was sort of Alan's closest friend in this group of poets. He told me later that he went to Iowa writing program and, and he stayed with Alan in the village for a little bit. And Alan once suggested that, you know, they do it. And Sunil was like, Sunil was happily married for many years. He was total heterosexual. He thought, okay, how does it work? And, um, <laughs> and Alan said, well, you have to get on the bottom. And Sunil said, nope, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I, so that sort of gives you an idea. They were, they were cool with it. <laughs> they were, they were, they were yeah. interesting men. One of the fascinating characters in your book was Hope Savage. Mm -hmm. and, and you told me before I came, we came out here that there's, there's quite a fascination on the internet about Hope Savage. So, so what did you learn about this woman, Hope Savage? Who was she and how did she becomes such an important figure in, in the book. Yeah, well, Hope Savage was, if Allen Ginsberg was looking for God in India, I was looking for Hope Savage, because it, she was this woman uh, who was sort of the great love of Gregory Corso's life. And um, she came from uh, South Carolina, uh, from a fairly large, uh, prosperous family there, and um, was besotted with, um, Shelley and, and uh, the romantic poets and could recite Alistair's 7,000 lines, you know, from memory. She was really into Wagner. She would, uh, you know, she was just kind of this odd duck. And she early on ran away from South Carolina and ended up in the West Village and hung out with a lot of the same people that Jack Kerouac um, and uh, Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg hung out. But she was very restless and um, and eventually, she was really the first of that whole circle to go to India. And, um, and India and Afghanistan and Iran and Russia and, and Capri. And I mean, she was just this incredibly restless. But she sort of ended up in India. And Gregory Corso kept saying to Alan, well, when you're in India, try and find hope. And uh, of course, you know, they did end up crossing paths. And, and um, both in Bombay and in Calcutta. And, and Alan actually got to know her pretty well and she was learning Urdu and she was learning to do Indian classical dance and, and she was wearing a veil and there was just all these little bits and pieces about her in, in, her letter, in Alan's letters to G Gregory. Hope's here, come to India, quick. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, as well as this sort of small cache of letters that I found that Hope had written to this other friend of hers um, enabled me to sort of piece together her I itinerary, but I could never get a real handle on her. And I, you know, I, I tried to track her down through her family, um, but nobody, she, she came back to America once in, I think, 1961, but that was the last time her, anyone in her family had seen her. And um, then she went back to India, where she met up with Ginsburg. But a after a while, they, I knew that she was still alive because the family lawyer threatened me um, not to write about her. 
Um, but and she, they were still sending checks to her, but they wouldn't tell me where she was or if she was still in India or if she was someplace else. But I did find this strange little collection of poetry uh, translated er, er, from Urdu to English with her name on it. I, I saw a reference to it on the internet, but I was never able to find a copy. So you she mentioned just she could speak Urdu, right? That she learned the language. She t yeah, yeah, she was very. She learned Russian. She learned German. She was kind of a polymath of a kind, of a sort. One of the interesting things in your book is that Allen Ginsberg and these other characters were in India while the border skirmish was happening with China. Mm -hmm. And what was Allen Ginsberg's thoughts about that situation? Well, um, the, the, there was this war. It was really actually more yeah, than war, a border yeah. skirmish. It was a war between India and China. Um, and it happened within like a week or two of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, and it was, John Kenneth Galbraith was our ambassador and it was this opportunity for India and America to, you know, get a little closer because India, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't ask help from the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union didn't want to alienate the only other communist power. So, you know, JFK just immediately sent planes. It didn't help, they kind of lost the war and it was kind of a shock um, for India. But Al it was very interesting for Alan because he, you know, he had all these ideas about India being this incredibly religious and spiritual place, and suddenly India goes to war with China and it becomes very jingoistic. You know, everyone was expected to write patriotic poems, and he was deeply horrified by this turn of events. And um, there was a period, this was while he was staying in Benares, where uh, these Gandhians decided to march from Delhi to Beijing, and he, he and Peter accompanied them for a few days, and he hung out with a lot of these people knew had known Gandhi, you know they believed deeply in nonviolence, and you know they thought this was a, a nightmare that that India and China were going to war, and it, I think he, that deeply influenced him. I mean he'd been political before. But um, mostly he was into being a poet before he came to India, but you know, almost immediately when he returned to America, he became very involved in anti-Vietnam War, which was just beginning. He actually traveled through Vietnam on his way home, and he saw what was happening there. And you know, as you know, I mean, and this idea of politics as, as a kind of political theater and that he could use this notoriety that he had tried so hard to escape on behalf of, you know, Vietnam War protests. So, you know, the whole, you know, levitating the Pentagon, the whole chanting of, of Om, the singing of bhajans, you know, the, the flower power stuff, all that political theater language came out of these months that he spent in India. And, you know, he was informed by these Gandhians. And, and you really, you look at the photographs of him when he goes off to India, see in some of the earlier, you know, he's very well groomed, you know, he has a comb, he has a handkerchief, but then when he comes back, he's like a swami, you know, he's wearing shawar, clean, you know, uh, he's got his like Kurta. shoulder bag yeah. <laughs> and his sandals and beads and his little harmonium and his finger symbols, and it's like he's, this is the hippie aesthetic, you know, he br just brought it back with him. Um, so he was sort of like the first hippie. Um, yeah, so, so that was really interesting to me. That's not really what the book's about, but in terms of India's impact on like the American the imagination. the historical significance of this is yeah. quite significant. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So at this point, I'm going to encourage people from the audience, if you have any questions or, or uh, the gentleman with the beard here, yeah. About um, so he, Ginsburg's immersing himself in other cultures and and bringing what he learns, participating and bringing what he learns back to his own culture. Um, and I'm wondering if, when writing about this, since there's like a, a conflict between um, seeing all cultures and religions as comparable and there's universal uh, ideas behind them, and, and then the, on the other side that we have to always pay like particular attention to the time and place uh, of what's happening. And I'm wondering, so in writing about this, did you did you experience that tension? Because academically, it's really uh, difficult to compare religions or cultures now. 
Well, I know that I started this book after um, ha probably going to India for 10 years or so. And there was a lot about India that completely mystified me, um, like the whole Hindu pantheon, for one. And I've, in, in reading and looking at these gods and goddesses through Ginsburg's eyes, he compared them to like Walt Disney uh, characters. And I don't know, he's, he was a really natural teacher, so when he was trying to describe like, well, like Kali would be a really good goddess for you, Bill Burroughs, because you're liking to cut things up. And you know, and Ganesh would be good for you, Peter, because you love your sweets and your drugs. And, um, and, and his own relationship with Krishna was, you know, Krishna, or, or the Gopi girls, you know, he had this deep experience of unrequited love. So, I mean, to see, to see these gods and to see, and the idea of having personal gods, I mean, that's, I mean, I, all of a sudden things began to fall into place. Now that's not the same thing as, you know, being raised with these gods and goddesses and, um, you know, reading Sanskrit and the texts and things. But I think he really did go to the heart of, of as much as it was possible for a Jewish homosexual raised in New Jersey. I, as a reader, I can say, I came away saying I thought Deborah really knew her Hindu <laughs> gods. I was, I was quite <laughs> astonished, actually, by uh, the depth of understanding there. And I really credit him for that entirely. Yeah. Now, the question down here. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. My question is, if he was alive today, and you think what would he say about India? And how did he die? Did he, because he looked very Indian I, when I saw his picture, but did he become Indian or did he? Thank and you. The question is, if he were alive today, what would he think of India? Oh, he'd probably be deeply disappointed at, at the state of things in India right now. Um, uh, he, d he did not, in the end, uh, find a uh, Hindu teacher. He did later in life um, find a Tibetan uh, teacher. So, I, and so I do think that it had a lasting impact on him, his travels, and that he tried to preserve the parts that he loved. And on his deathbed, he was still reminiscing about all his friends in Calcutta. Um, question here? You were talking about uh, Ginsburg being mainly with the Hindu gods and Hindu temples, etc. How much exposure did you have with Muslim thought and Buddhist thought and some of the other, I should say, boundary uh, changing other religious thought? A good question. Uh, well, he certainly studied. Um, like when he was at Columbia, he immersed himself in all the Christian theologians. Um, and I don't know about Islam, uh, but you know, he was very um, uh, read, well read in, some, in like the Ramayana and the Gita. And, um, and then later, you know, once he got into Tibetan Buddhism, he was, you know, basically, uh, you know, a Tibetan, you know, he, he founded a Tibetan university in Boulder, Colorado. So, I mean, I think he had deep engagement with Tibetan and Buddhist thought, or Tibetan Buddhist thought. Um, he, he didn't like Zen Buddhism so much. He thought that was Gary's thing. He, he really had a hard time sitting still. So that wasn't going to work very well for him. But he also spent a lot of time in, in Muslim areas in India too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, um, I, I don't think he sort of picked up on the, mm -hmm. they thought he was Christian, you know, because he was white. Uh, all the Indians that he hung out with, they would forget that he was Jewish. <laughs> so they just assume any white person is Christian. Uh, question here, gentleman in the middle, yeah. This is very interesting, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you both for this fascinating conversation. Um, I have a two-part question. I'm curious what 
God meant to Ginsburg, and secondly, if, if Ginsburg were alive today following that question, um, how do you think he would agitate to protest against climate change or to shift the discourse on climate change? I think about that a lot because I feel like so many of our, our means of protest have sort of lost their power and he just seemed to be so imaginative when it came to you know doing a, pr a protest performance and plus he was so famous he could you know he made good copy um, what was the first part of your question again oh what did God yeah see that's interesting because like I read the letters that he wrote, I told you he had this, uh, he had this experience where uh, when he was still at Columbia where he was lying on his bed reading Blake and he heard this voice of what he s assumed was God reciting Blake and he opened this window and he saw God in the sky and in the, win in the building cornices and everything. And when he wrote about that experience at the time, because he wrote to letters to, and he described it all in terms of this very Judeo-Christian type God. And, um, you know, and he would quote, you know, all these theologians. Um, and, you know, when he talked to his father about it, his father was thought, oh my God, he's, my son has become a Christian. You know, it, that was like even more horrifying than the idea that he might have gone as mad as his mother was. But um, but then when he sat down with the Paris Review, like in 1967, or to talk about that experience, and that's the experience that uh, that, the, that that description is the one that everyone refers to when they talk about his uh, vision of God and his vision of uh, what it was. It was an entirely uh, you could see. I mean, he described as seeing this the God as a blue hand. Now, would he have described God as a blue hand if he hadn't gone to India? I mean, I think India really, you know, changed his idea about what he saw, you know, years, you know, after that, he, the way he processed what he saw. Um, and, you know, he was going around and looking for um, gurus and so on. And, and w one of the saints that he spoke to um, said, you know, we'll take, Blake as your guru, to, you know, since that he Blake was the one that was so tied in with this experience of God, so he did take all the wisdom of, of all the various sadhus and saints that he spoke with in India, and I think he internalized them, uh, and you know that is was the God that he ended up with, if that makes sense. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think he, he believed in his God, but he understood it was, you know, that, that Burroughs would have a different God and Kerouac would have the monotheistic punitive God maybe, but, you know, everyone would have their own personal God just as they do in India and just in Tibet too. You know, you have these various avatars. Some of them speak to you more than others. Okay, I'll ask a question then. Mm -hmm. what, were th what was uh, the biggest challenge writing the book? I had so much fun writing this book. I was just, first of all, I, was, I hadn't written a book in 10 years and I was so excited to be writing again. And I loved all of these characters. I loved Peter, I loved Burroughs and Hope Savage. You know, I thought about them, dreamt about them. Um, there was no difficulty in it. It was, you know, I had to try, I, I retraced Alan's steps. I went to his, um, the place where he lived in Calcutta, the place where he lived in Benares. I met the son of the landlord that he was sneaking the chicken from. Interesting. And, and it was just so much fun. I love all these places, so. And the other thing, Burroughs was significantly older than Alan. What, yeah. Can you talk about their relationship and, and how Alan viewed him Basically and Burroughs how it evolved. Basically, Burroughs was desperately in love with Alan, and uh, and and uh, Burroughs scared Alan. <laughs> he didn't really understand him. He helped him a lot. I don't think Naked Lunch would exist if it hadn't been for Alan, sort of picking up the papers off the floor and and putting them in some kind of order. But uh, no, you know there was something very scary about Burroughs. 
for Alan. And he felt, I think, that Burroughs would e eat him up, <laughs> you know, if he <laughs> let him. And, and we've talked about Ginsburg and how India changed him. You've spent a lot of time in India. How has that changed you? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. It's certainly, uh, it's not just India has changed me, but like I guess Indians, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, listening to them talk and argue and their view of the world, I think I've internalized to some extent. Um, at least my friends there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the question is why is she so interested in Indian culture and what leads her to write books about India? Well, I started out as a literary biographer, um, writing biography of American poets. I wrote two biographies of American poets, and and I, I, and after a while, you feel like everybody's been written about in America and in England, and you know, the, which I, you know, English is my language. So, but I felt like there were all these stories. Uh, also, I got tired of biographies. I hate. I got tired of very chronological stories. I like you know, to, you know, write what's now called narrative nonfiction, so, but to have characters who are interesting and, <coughs> and reveal something. And as I say, I wanted to write about India's relationship with America, or India's impact on, on American imagination, and this was my way into it. Um, and I just feel like there are more stories that haven't been told for uh, maybe a Western audience there. I don't know, or at least not the stories that I want to read about. He also wrote about how he returned and uh, visited, uh, you know, after the war with Bangladesh. Um, and what happened, what was, what transpired on that, that next visit? Yeah, that's sort of the epilogue. Um, if you, there was this, I'm, sh I'm sure you know that there was this terrible, uh, uh, hurricane typhoon that hit the coast of Bangladesh it was probably the most, I think Amitav said it like, was like the worst, uh, most uh, devastating uh, hurricane ever in that, in that area. Um, and so there was this massive... Um, well, so it was a hurricane, it wasn't the war. Well, the or hurricane came first and that, so that was the first wave of Jeff refugees and if you remember, you know, the concert for Bangladesh um, that was to help the, the refugees that Ravi Shankar and George Harrison did. Um, but, and it was partly because West Pakistan's response to the suffering uh, in the wake of this horrible storm was so bad that this war broke out. So Allen showed up in 1971, w which was, um, about a year later when there were still massive uh, refugees coming, that this time is trying to get away from the war, and uh, all coming into Calcutta, and he wrote this poem called Jessore Road, which is the road from Bangladesh to Calcutta, and just described you know, the flooding, the hunger, the desperation of all these people streaming out of, out of what was then had become Bangladesh, and uh, and luckily he uh, he taped. There's this tape of him on the road, and you hear the splashing of the waters. You hear the people begging through the car windows for money. You hear the bureaucrats saying what they're trying to do for the uh, refugees. It's it's just the most. Shocking. I mean, it, it, the, to listen to the tape is really um, a powerful experience. Hmm. A question here? Oh, well, wait, we'll get you the microphone. What do you think his greatest legacy is? Well, I think it's his poems. You know, I mean, I think he, he probably, I think he wrote at least two great immortal poems, uh, if not more. I mean, there are others. He wrote a lot of bad poems, but but I also I, I also feel like he was kind of if 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 one believes in saints, he was our saint. He was an American kind of saint. He was a saintly figure, and um, you know, at first I was a little hesitant because I thought, oh well, he was gay, didn't really like women. But then I realized, no, he, he didn't. 
he didn't not like women. He just wasn't really interested in women. You know, so I mean, so I felt like, oh, I, I can really, I can love this person. You know, I mean, there was just something so endearing about him. And I loved his sense of humor. I loved his sort of neuroses. I just feel like he modeled a kind of tenderness and humility that you know you don't see very often. So what happened to him and uh, Peter when they returned to America? Well, they returned separately. Um, Alan flew back to Vancouver, left Peter in Benares. Peter was learning um, to play the sarod. Um, and, uh, and eventually Peter made his way back to Calcutta and decided he would, he would walk home. He would walk home. So from Calcutta, he would walk back to America. <laughs> and he actually did walk. He walked through India, he walked through Pakistan, he walked through Afghanistan and Iran, and I don't really know what happened, but it, it was like eight months later, actually the day before JFK was assassinated, he showed up in the village, and then they continued on as before. Amazing. Well, with that, I think <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap things up. Um, thank you very much, Deborah. Thank you, guys. Thank you for the questions. They're really good.